Hello and welcome to the Mersey Waves podcast. I'm Sarah and I'm part of the communications team at Liverpool City Council and today we're talking Europe. Back in June 2016, Liverpool voted decisively for Britain to stay in the EU, putting it at odds with the pro-European UK. 58% of voters in the city backed Remain, giving the EU a vote of confidence. As of the 31st of January, Britain is now going it alone. But will we notice much of a difference and has Europe really played that big of a role in shaping Liverpool? For this episode, I'm heading out and about to meet three people who feel very strongly about the city's relationship with Europe. I'll be chatting to Claire McCoggan, who is Director of Culture Liverpool, and Claire was the Executive Producer of our 2008 European Capital of Culture Year. Robin Tudor, who is the Head of PR and Communications at Liverpool John Lennon Airport, which is one of the longest established operational airports in the UK. And Max Steinberg, who is the Liverpool Group Chairman of the Arena and Convention Centre. Max began his career in Liverpool back in 1975 and has seen the city landscape transform during his time here. First up, we headed to the Culture Liverpool offices to meet Claire McColgan. Claire, we won the European Capital of Culture back in 2003. What was the cultural scene like before this point? Because there's this perception that it was a cultural wasteland, but that's not probably 100% accurate. Oh God, it's not accurate at all. You know, I think the thing thing about... um, capital of culture was it gave us the chance to realise what we actually had so there was loads of work going on a huge amount of it funded if I may so so by Europe so where I came from I worked in Speak and the Dingle on European social fund projects called Art Skills which was about getting young people back into education and employment through using the creative arts to do so there was hundreds of things like that happening across the city huge amounts of community work but also we still we obviously still had seven national museums they they're they're still there they were there before take liverpool obviously came 30 years ago um 31 years ago now to the city and started the regeneration of the waterfront the biennial had just started and the biennial at the very beginning was absolutely fantastic people hadn't seen anything like it those are people with long memories will, sit, will remember the kind of hotel that was around the victoria monument that's one of the reasons i think why we won because it was just completely bonkers but amazing there was absolutely loads and loads of stuff happening because kind of just before we bid the city was obviously going through quite a dark time at at that point and and was probably at the lowest point it's been Mm. but sometimes during those times great art comes through so the music scene was amazing then the the kind of the 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 club scene was amazing people came when i came here in 1989 for the music so it's never Liverpool's never ever been a cultural desert. What Capital of Culture did was remind us what we had, but also what we could be. So, did we go for that title because it was sort of the only option for us? Was it the only game in town? Which is a phrase I've used in other. Interviews. No, I don't think it was. I think it was. I mean, the story goes that the then um, leader, Mike Story, and the chief executive, David Henshaw. Someone had put this this letter from government in a bin and they dug it out of the bin and said, oh, that would be good for a try. But I think it's a real symbol of where we were at that point. It's worth remembering that confidence was so low that we just thought, well, if we get shortlisted, that's great. So a city that gave us the Beatles, that has been at the forefront of kind of social history and creative regeneration for the last, gosh, century, thought we could just get shortlisted. So it wasn't about... It wasn't about kind of doing something... It, a big part of Capital of Culture was about rebuilding confidence in ourselves, and I think it did that beautifully. It wasn't the only game in town. I mean, what was brilliant about it was, while we were sat in a room in Dale Street working out the bid, 
there were loads of people looking at the Liverpool One development, looking at the arena development, looking at the kind of whole refiguring. People remember you could park on Shavas Park, probably quite illegally, I can't quite. <laughs> but you could park on Shavas Park. It was, a, it was a car, it was a wasteland car park. So all those plans for that physical redevelopment of the city were going on at the same time as we were working on you know, great plans for a cultural rege- regeneration. And I think because we'd done... The reason why I came on board was because of the work we'd done in Speak, especially around embedding culture at the heart of their regeneration process because they'd had so much money from different education action zones, redevelopment fund it, f- funding, you know. There's, there's been there's absolutely loads. And we used that model to think, even if we bid and we didn't win, we'd have a legacy of kind of how you engage people's stories, which is what culture is. It's, it's telling stories, people's stories in the life of the city. Was there a point from maybe from like the bidding process to the end of 2008 where it sort of struck you about how transformational that funding and that year and the title has been, or was it more of a, like a hindsight thing? You knew the transformational power, power of it. Actually, it wasn't the opening of 2008. For me, it was when we did the Liverpool Nativity with the BBC and it was on the st- it was when they they put a stage at the bottom of William Brown Street and thousands of people turned up and it was it was live on the BBC but there was just a feeling there that it was all going to be all right that it was and it wasn't just going to be all right it was going to be great and i think when we did the opening that cemented that and Phil Redmond always talks you know Phil Redmond talks with the city's shoulders relaxed and i really think that's what happened and from then on it was like a whirlwind but until it's age is a very age and time are great things. I think we were also hungry for it, not just for the bid, but also to deliver the best European capital of culture ever. You know, all of those kind of narrative that went around it. It's only looking back ten years later. And yes, I would have done things differently if I was in charge then. But the hindsight is brilliant. But I think it's now where you realise where you get in a taxi and people still choose that year to say that's when the city changed, and culture was the glue that bound everything else that was happening in the city together but it also because if you remember at that time it was just before the recession so we were having a party when everyone was just starting the recession so our recession didn't start till later but would we have built the arena would we have finished liverpool one we had to finish because we were on we were on stage on the first of january 2008 so there was an absolute push to get the stage ready I'm not sure all those things would have been completed without hitting recession if we hadn't had European capital culture as our end point for it all to be done. Is it too simplistic to say, thanks to the European funding, people in this city got interested in culture? I think it is too simplistic because people don't really, people don't care. They don't care where their funding's coming from. You know, we always make mistakes that everyone really knows exactly where every penny that, 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 that when they just want to see great things and be part of great things you know if you live here you just want to be part of it don't you so I don't I think that probably is a bit simplistic because the European narrative in the kind of late early 90s turn of the century in Liverpool was so strong because everything was funded by Europe so European capital of culture was a prize that was given by the UK government actually at the time um, but the building so the you know the new museum, the everyman, the, the fact, the infrastructure that we're sitting in now, you know, the, the, the dock, all of that was European funding. So everywhere was the EU sign. I think even St George's Hall, although I might be wrong, I think St George's Hall was heritage lottery funding, but I'm sure it had European funding in it 
as well because I remember there was a big banner outside it. So I'm assuming that did as well. Everything that you look at in this city has been touched by European funding. Capital of Culture was a real mixture of lots of different funding. There's a small prize that you get for winning it, but we had a big Cities on the Edge project which is about our connections with other European cities. But Liverpool would be absolutely nowhere the city is now without European funding. I don't think anyone could disagree with that. And I think because we've never, interestingly, our local political situation has never matched nationally. (laughs) There's always been a disconnect. It kind of took the politics out of it a bit, I think. And Europe did step in. They stepped in when we were talking managed decline here in the the late 80s. And how can you let this city, this beautiful city, go into managed decline? It's beyond belief. When you're sitting here now in the Cunard building... And you see what we've achieved over the last 15 years. This is one of the most important ports in the world. It's one of the b- biggest stories in the world, you know, not just with football, but obviously at the moment, but with its music, with its global reach, with the people who came through the port and went on or stayed. Europe believed in this city and they invested masses amount in driving the physical regeneration. And actually, if you look at the European social funds, the, the emotional regeneration as well. So you don't think we'd have had giants roaming our streets or the world's best pyrotechnic companies coming here without that 2008 title? No. We wouldn't have had the confidence to put it on. So we, we learnt things um, during the, the, the six years build-up and the European Capital Culture Year itself. We tried things that cities have to be really brave to try as one-off moments. So I remember the whole conversations around the spider were really interesting because that wasn't connected as a story to Liverpool Whereas giants always have been, they've always connected themselves to the story. That was just something kind of completely, if you like, random that appeared in the city and everyone created their own stories around. And I'm really glad we did that because it would have been very easy to do, very easy conceptually to do the little girl giant and and, and the story of the city. But actually we chose to do something that was much more about a new Liverpool in 2008. So Phil, again, Phil, you know, he talks about going from the cobbles through to the glass and steel of the waterfront and actually that's what the spider did the spider was glass and steel it wasn't gentle and storytelling and emotional the giants are emotional but we learn how to put on great events during that year as a city we learn and our audiences learn you can't give Liverpool audiences rubbish after what we've done in the last 10 years you just can't but and we it became natural to us and this is really important because it's never said it became very natural to us to shut the whole city down to do big major events, that does not happen anywhere else. The title of this podcast is What Has Europe Ever Done For Us? But just listening to you talk, the fact that that title gave us the ambition and the confidence to do what we did within 2008 and beyond, we then inspired other places around the UK and Europe to follow our lead pretty much and say, well, actually, we can achieve more through our cultural programme. Oh, gosh, look at UK City of Culture. So UK City of Culture is a direct result of Liverpool's tenure as European Capital Culture. So Andy Byrne and Phil Redmond came up with the idea post... Because otherwise, well, we wouldn't be doing it now. (laughs) So they would have been waiting for till 2023 for the next European Capital Culture. So Coventry, Derry, Londonderry, Hull, those three cities have changed their future by what Liverpool did in 2008 and the lead that Liverpool took in that. And they've changed their future and they've changed the future for other cities that will follow in that title. But I think that what I think what was really interesting about Liverpool, it was at the cusp of a... Of a 2008 was a really interesting year, just before the financial crash. 
There was a lot of money around, both from Europe and from governments. The money obviously isn't there anymore, but those cities are, are still doing brilliant things with the money that they've got. So I think there's, there's a huge amount of learning, but also, you know, we are asked all the time. We use as a model of good practice across Europe in terms of European capital culture. And our relationship with Europe won't change post-Brexit. It just won't. Because we look outwards, and we always have done. We're now in a post-Brexit world, so where does our cultural calendar, cultural events go from here? What do we do about funding them? How is the... Are we positive about the future? Yeah, I think we can be really positive about the future because it's wrong not to be, for a start. You know, our job is to make sure that the city is all right and does really well. That's what we're, that's what we're paid to do. So I'm really excited about the future. I'm really excited about the relationships we've got with Europe because, remember, we have very strong relationships with artists from across the world and we, and we will continue to work with those and that we will continue to dream great dreams and bring great things here. We're working very... Government recognise Liverpool for what it does for the, for the nation. It recognises the brand that can propel the whole nation around the world. It also recognises how good we are at this. I think the city region for me is, is, is hugely exciting because there's stories to tell there that we've not, we've not told yet, so that is a real opportunity. But I think more importantly, there will be moments of greatness that I can't really talk about now because we're still developing them and we're still working on ideas. But I think 2022 will be a very, very big year for the city. We're thinking of some big ideas for that. And we're bringing great things. I mean, even this year, we've got we've obviously announced Niantic, which is the first Pokemon event to, to, to happen in the UK. Things like that will keep being attracted to this city because this city does them exceptionally well. So I'm really, really positive about the future. We need to find where we're going to get the money. But I think great ideas always, like magnets, draw money to them. We've not had, kind of, in terms of just putting things on, we've not had loads of money from Europe over the last 10 years. Our money has generally come from the Arts Council and generally come from private sector or lottery or government or sponsorship or the city region. I've got really, really great ideas for the future direction of culture in the city and I think we've not seen the last of major events by any stretch of the imagination here. Next up on this journey to finding out what Europe has ever done for us, I'm heading to Liverpool John Lennon Airport. Unfortunately, I'm not about to get on a plane, but I am here to chat to Robin Tudor, who is the head of PR and communications for the airport. Robin, thank you very much for joining the Merseyways podcast. Uh, thanks for allowing us into the airport. You're welcome. Um, let's talk firstly about the airport. Um, I've seen a couple of descriptions when I was doing some research for this, describing it very unflatteringly as an old chicken shed. Um, um, yeah, I mean, that's a historic description, <laughs> I am delighted to say, as opposed to today's environment. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I've, I've been here quite a few years, and, and when I first came, um, yeah, I used to refer to it as a binky warehouse, to be honest <laughs> with you, because that's pretty much what it looked like. You had a front door, a back door, checking desks, and a kind of transport calf in the middle and not a lot else and you look at it now and it is just a massive massive contrast it, it, you know we are dare I say a proper airport um, compared to what we had in those days so yeah massive changes here what was the change for us it was um, twofold really I mean we um, got the right airlines in and we've been at the forefront of low-cost travel pretty much since almost day one really um, and the, the, the key factor in that was EasyJet and we attracted EasyJet 
convinced them that operating uh, a base in the north of England was the right thing to do and they've just gone from strength to strength uh, as we all know uh, since that time and the other was that we got new owners in um, the Peel group and Peel came in and if we we're going to grow the business in terms of more passengers then we needed the infrastructure to accommodate it and so they helped with some of the investment clearly in terms of building a new terminal building and that clearly was supported very much by um, the EU as well of course through Objective 1 so the infrastructure was uh, yeah, the, the second part of that, that process if you like. In terms of those conversations with the, the likes of EasyJet were they difficult conversations to have at the time was it not seen as an appealing location Liverpool? Yeah it was one that we had to um, convince them if you like in terms of what the capabilities of the airport were. We had to obviously convince them about the market potential um, in terms of the Northwest market as a whole. Um, but what we were very good at, if you like, was um, having the flexibility to um, run our business very much in line with the way that they needed to operate. So we had to change the whole business model here from the way that we ran the airport prior to EasyJet coming to when they started operating. And what I mean by that is that you know, the whole nature of low cost is that their aircraft don't sit on the ground very long. They only make money if their aircraft are actually in the skies operating. So in those days, a lot of airlines would operate flights where they would come in, sit on the ground, fill up with loads of food, fill up with lots of obviously passengers and luggage, but they'd take time and um, it was like a frills service, as often it, was, it was often referred to. Whereas EasyJet and the low cost airlines, it's in, get everybody off get all their bags off, get everybody on, bags on, don't need lots of catering because that's not what low cost is all about. Um, and so we had to make sure that we could turn their aircraft round in as little as 25 minutes, which at the time was, I won't say unheard of, but it was a challenge. And we demonstrated we could do that. And once we were successful in demonstrating that, that encouraged them to put even more business and commit, commit even more aircraft to Liverpool. When was this? In the 90s? This or? was in the um, mid to late 1990s. Uh, I think EasyJet came here in 1996, which coincided when Peel came here. And you know, EasyJet's success from operating just two flights, that's what they started with, two flights, one to Nice and one to Amsterdam from here. Um, and uh, very quickly they could see that this was going to be a you know, huge opportunity for them. That you know, They've grown and grown to way in excess of I think 30 odd destinations now they've got I think it's seven aircraft based here um, and you know not many people have, have, uh, are not aware of EasyJet these days whereas at that time you know it was other than the TV series airline if people remember that mm, I do remember that's it, probably what yeah. most people um, <laughs> remember for EasyJet and um, that series came out showing that they operate from Liverpool which for us is a great PR coup as well. At that time, was European funding the only game in town, essentially, to transform this airport? It, it was. I mean, Peel obviously put significant investment in, but you know, it was really important that they could call upon that support as well. And I think at the time, there's a recognition that what developing the airport could mean for the city region, because it's not just about it's great for us as a business and we've got more people using the airport. It's what a growing, successful airport can do for the region that it serves. And, and you know, if you look at an airport, it's a huge creator of jobs. We all know that, and we've got around about two and a half thousand jobs here today on site. There are hundreds, if not thousands, more associated with the airport indirect jobs across the city region. If you like, if you think about you know, inward investment opportunities that the airport brings, um, particularly the visitor economy, 
you know, really important for the city region to be well connected and that's what the airport does. You know, we see now every year thousands, hundreds of thousands of European visitors flying through here because we've got the airlines, we've got the infrastructure to accommodate that. So it's, it's a win-win for us as a business, but more importantly for the city region. And so what does a post-Brexit airport look like? Well, in terms of the day before and the day after, um, no change whatsoever. And um, there's been a, obviously a lot of planning and a lot of uncertainty for months and months you know, prior to getting to where we are today. Um, Has that helped? Is it in some, is it safe it's a bit a, to it in throwing? It's, it's, it's helped in terms of some of the practicalities of running the business, and so there'll be very little change here, other than perhaps a little bit of signage when you return back into the UK. Um, the difficulty we've had up until Brexit has been the uncertainty that's created, with, particularly by the airlines within the aviation industry, in terms of what's the, how's the market going to react to this? Not knowing when Brexit actually was going to take place meant that airlines we were talking to have put off making decisions on investing in new business here and, and putting new routes through Liverpool, and that's a fact. And so we're hoping now that now that that uncertainty has been removed, we are where we are now, we can all move forward. Um, that hopefully we're now in a better place to pursue those same talks that we had those carriers, knowing that there's a clearer vision of what we've got ahead of us now. So it could be a positive change now that we're in that yeah. post-Brexit phase. We, we, yeah, we, we, we believe so. I mean, say it's a the aviation, aviation industry at this moment in time, as we all know, is um, it's quite a difficult, challenging industry. We've all seen what's happened to Thomas Cook. There's been obviously a lot of concern about Flybe recently. So it's it's not um, the ideal environment at the moment. But yeah, looking forward to say that uncertainty, Brexit, it's it's now behind us. And so we can move forward now and have some hopefully some meaningful discussions with airlines to now look at what you know the city region particularly has got to offer and the confidences in the city region in terms of investment and the tourism sector to give airlines that encouragement to now make Liverpool their next choice as a, as a new destination. Do you think there's a degree of scaremongering with people that are like, oh, well, Europeans aren't going to feel welcome when they come to Liverpool, they're not going to fly to Britain? I, I, I guess that there is naturally some of that, but I think it will soon kind of settle down and I think um, people will see that, you know, what you can do and see and visit in the UK from the visitor economy perspective, you know, there's, there's no change. It's, it is business as usual in that respect. You know, getting to the UK, getting through the UK should be no different for the vast majority of people. Um, that might take a little bit of time, perhaps, before everybody's convinced of that, but I'm sure, you know, it won't be too long before, you know, that, that confidence is back to where it was before. You've been in this role for nearly 12 years, is that right, or 12 um, years? Significantly longer, actually, <laughs> but, yeah, well, I've been here for quite a bit longer, but, yeah, I've been doing the kind of PR and comms role and the kind of stakeholder engagement for yeah, quite a few years now. So is this one of the more interesting challenges to have faced you? Yeah, it's... Um, it, it is. I mean, it's, it's one that um, I think there's been that, that uncertainty and the difficulty. When, you know, when we've seen changes within the industry over the years, um, we know it's coming. The timetable has been kind of stuck to and we've, we've accepted those changes and, and moved on as a business, if you like. The difficulty with this one has just been that complete uncertainty. Not unique to us, clearly. It's not a Liverpool Airport problem or an issue. It was for the industry as a whole, and there were for a period of time some really big concerns about whether aircraft 
UK airlines in particular would actually be allowed to continue to operate into Europe. There's various kind of licenses and various inter-country agreements in place. Um, and I think everybody was of the view, well, it's bound to get sorted out. But until it actually was, there was no guarantees. And so there was an element of scaremongering there to a certain extent. So that uncertainty has made it's made life very difficult for airport and for airlines and for the aviation industry. So, so yeah, I haven't seen anything like that, I have to say, before. But yeah, we move forward now, and I think you know we're much clearer on, on you know the, what, what's in front of us. I think, and um, you know, hopefully that'll certainly be for the best for um, from this airport's perspective. I think we're coming on the back of a great year for you guys, an award-winning year for you guys last year, which is great news. It, it was, yeah. I mean, we've the, the big focus for us. Um, at the same time as trying to grow the number of airlines and to grow the number of routes, our big focus for the past two or three years has been on the customer experience. And you know, the airport kind of strap line these days is Liverpool John on Airport, faster, easier, friendlier. Um, and as the old adage goes, you know, it does what it says it does on the tin, if you like. Um, you know, we offer. A we believe a really good passenger experience that's what passengers feedback has been and we've won some awards on the back of that and passengers actually voted um, for us specifically because of the hassle-free relaxed comfortable environment that they see here now which to many is a is a novelty you know the fact that you can get through security here you know we get 97 percent think it is of passengers through in less than 10 minutes so to take that uncertainty and some of the frustrations and the part of the passenger journey when you travel by air that often is the, the stressful bit for passengers, particularly families. Um, you know, to be able to take that away and to be able to say, look, you know, come through Liverpool, by no means will we encourage everybody to turn up the last minute, but you've got a very good chance of A, your flight being on time, we've got one of the best on-time records of any airport in the UK, um, and to get you through the building so that you can relax enjoy the experience particularly going on holiday to get that journey off to the best possible start you know we've been very successful at that so so yeah we, and we're going to be making sure that we continue to keep those kind of key benefits very much at the forefront of what we're doing going forward i hope so too long may it continue thank you very much for joining us thank you finally i'm off to meet max steinberg who talks about how he has witnessed the transformation of the city over the past four decades Max, thank you very much for joining the Merseyways podcast. We're here in the Pullman Hotel, a very beautiful hotel in the city centre, which may not have been here if it wasn't for the subject matter that we are talking about today. Um, you arrived to work in Liverpool 45 years ago. Is it unrecognisable to what it was in 1975? Almost completely. Certainly the city centre is unrecognisable. My, my memory of the city centre both growing up here and then starting work in the city centre is of a place that was quite dismal, quite dark. Um, some of the buildings had, well, many of the buildings had fallen to disrepair, or many buildings had fallen to disrepair, sorry. Many of the, many of the um, iconic buildings of the city were also black. Nobody had cleaned them for a long time. So the place looked uh, shabby. Uh, the place didn't look inviting. And in my job, my, one of my previous jobs when I was Chief Executive of Liverpool Vision and I was bringing people here between the years of 2010 and 2018, some of their views of the city were fixed at that time of a very dark and unwelcoming place. And the word I used to get more often than not from the visitors or the potential investors and the potential businesses who were coming here was a three-letter word, and it was wow. 
people just came here and could not believe the transformation because in their mind, that image of Liverpool from the 70s and 80s had somehow stuck. Now, I think we're well past that because the transformation is, is still taking place, but it has been so phenomenal. But yes, um, unrecognisable. If we look back to previous decades, Merseyside was designated as an Objective 1 area. What does that mean for anyone who's never heard the phrase Objective 1? So between 1989 and 1993, we were what was termed an Objective 2 region. I'll I'll explain objectives (laughs) in a minute. Um, But during the 1990s, the GDP or gross domestic product of Liverpool uh, dropped below 75% of the national average. Now, that meant that we were able to apply for Objective 1 status, which actually would allow more resources to come from Europe for a wider variety of uh, initiatives and renewal opportunities than was the case under Objective 2. Many areas were Objective 2, very few areas, uh, certainly in the UK were Objective 1, and there were very few areas in Europe that were Objective 1. It was both a good thing and a bad thing, because of course, for the UK government who had to support the approval of Objective 1 for Liverpool and the, and the city region because Liverpool and the city region were going to benefit. The government had to come to terms with the fact that it was basically saying to the European Union part of the UK has dropped below 75% of GDP. Uh, but the city council uh, and partners in the city region uh, played a very strong game together, worked together very very well. and. Um, Michael Hasselton, who I'd worked for in, in 1981, also came into play and supported the application uh, to the EU through government and government did get on board. And so we were, object- we were awarded Objective 1 status with all the funding that would come with that in 1994. And in my view, over the 45 years I've worked in this city, um, it is probably of all the milestones I've seen in terms of funding opportunities and and what it brought, and I was someone who managed significant monies after the civil disturbances in 81, so I saw the benefit of that, the quantum of that, but this was probably the biggest significant milestone in terms of what then followed. How much did Merseyside get? So, um, between 1994 and 2006, Merseyside received £1.5 billion from from the Commission. We had a number of strategic objectives in which we were going to persuade the Commission we'd invest that money. Um, so investing in people to increase job opportunities, um, stimulating enterprise and upgrading skills, uh, enhancing technology, and a very important one for what was to follow later, developing the city and city region strengths in culture, media and tourism. Would we have managed without that money, do you think? I think we'd be looking at a very different city and region now. Well, one of the other, one of the other questions, I mean, I think that's a very good question, because one of the questions that the Commission posed to Liverpool, and I was heading up a government agency, so I was involved in responding to some of these questions with, with colleagues in other uh, government agencies and, and the City Council, is what's Liverpool's purpose? What's Liverpool's purpose in the future? What's it about this city? Um, it had significant unemployment rates. I'll come back to that in a minute. It had significant long-term needs. That's never employed, never been in training. Um, It lacked anywhere for young people to go and listen to music or enjoy um, the facilities that were now becoming more prevalent in other major cities. Um, So when 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 you turn that on itself and say what was achieved after that period of time, 
the programme created 40,000 new jobs. Um, the programme allowed for a third of a million of training places. Um, so we were, we were beginning to train a workforce that for many of them had never had any training to become skilled again, or become skilled for the first time, sorry. Um, uh, we're, we're in, as you say, we're in the Pullman Hotel today, which is part of the Arena and Convention Centre. £60 million of European money um, enabled uh, the development of this. The, the whole development cost was around £160 million from memory. But, um, and when I look forward and backwards, I think every commentator would say that this Arena Convention Centre, with all of, the, all of its assets of the Exhibition Centre and the Arena and the Hotel, has been a key element of, of reviving the visitor and waterfront economy, which has been so important to Liverpool. What, what was it trans, trans, did transform the city? Absolutely. The city changed and began to change for the good in the most remarkable way. And I was thinking to myself before the interview, what would I say to you were the achievements, that, just to sum up the achievements of, of, of this money? I think in a way, as a Liverpoolian, this is my home city, I was born and bred here, it reset confidence. Um, I think also, uh, for a city that, in European terms, had faced the wrong way for a considerable period of time, as we traded substantially with Europe from eastern ports or southern ports, the economy, through some of the work I described earlier, began to diversify in a way that a modern city needed to diversify. We were, we, we were too much a public sector economy and we were too much an economy dependent on one or two or three industries. Now, I can look you in the eye and say we are a knowledge economy um, which compares with many or virtually any city in, in, in this country. And the third thing, and it's back to the wow thing, is that physical transformation was stunning. Simply stunning. Um, Liverpool became, because I think of that investment from the European Union, or it began the journey and it really began to show that it could be a modern, vibrant European city. Obviously we don't have a crystal ball, but what are your predictions for how Brexit will impact on Liverpool? Is it a blow? Do you think we will carry on regardless? We have an economy that depends on us being a trading nation. We have been, we are, and we always need to be a trading nation. We do not have enough of the domestic audience here, domestic population here, to buy our own goods all the time. We have to export. And of course, for a long period of time, British goods were seen as the best in so many areas. So the question I ask myself is, and this is not political, I, I, I suspect that a new deal with Europe will be difficult and somewhat contentious to arrive at. Why would we make it more difficult for ourselves to trade with our biggest trading partner, which is the EU? Um, now, this is a resilient country, we're a resilient people, we've got um, many world-class businesses, we will survive. I think the question is, will we survive and prosper? And on that, if you interview me again in five years' time, I'll be able to give you a better answer. Watch this face, I'll see you in five years' time then. I look forward to it. <laughs> Thanks, Max. We're coming to the end of this episode. Thanks to our three guests for their brilliant contributions. I feel like there is very little doubt that the transformational power of our relationship with Europe has been essential. The city changed physically and emotionally, and it's safe to say that Liverpool will always have a bond with Europe. I hope you enjoyed listening. Please rate, review and subscribe. And if you want to get in touch, why not drop us a line to hello at merseywaves.co.uk. Thank you.